0: You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. And now, here is your host, Saul.
1: Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of The Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Ebema, and I have a special guest for you. My guest is Adam McHugh. He's the author of Blood from a Stone, a memo of how wine brought me back from the dead. Adam, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Where did you grow up?
2: I'm originally from Seattle, Washington. Spent uh, the first 18 years of my life there. I'm an only child. It was just me and my parents. And uh, so I grew up there. And then I ended up down in California for college back in the, in the mid-90s, forever ago. And, uh, <laughs> and I've largely been in California ever since, aside from four years on the East Coast for, for grad school.
1: Yeah, so in, in your book, I say that you pursued an ordained ministry through the Presbyterian uh, uh, right. denomination. How did that calling come around for you?
2: That's a good question. Uh, I feel like my journey has been so full of such a wild ride and so full of steps and missteps and <laughs> sort of backing into things. It has not been a straight line by any stretch. But I went to uh, the Princeton School of Theology after college on the East Coast uh, with the intention of, of going into academia. I always wanted to get a PhD in, in New Testament or, or church history. I, I didn't actually quite no um and uh, so i didn't go with the intention of of becoming an ordained minister though i was sort of pursuing that route as well sort of on the side um but uh, i I burned out of academia a couple of years in or burned out isn't the right word i i, I got somewhat <laughs> disillusioned and I, I think my version of academia was far more romanticized than it actually was and so as as really a backup plan i pursued ordination i was in the pc usa and i i, I pursued the ordination process through um, that denomination and uh and part of that was actually i had to work was what's called a CPE, clinical pastoral education. And so my first chaplaincy experience was as part of that ordination process, uh, working as a hospital chaplain in Orange County for a few months.
1: How did you transition then to hospice uh, chaplaincy work?
2: it was 2008 you know the recession the great recession was was happening and there weren't a lot of other options for me and i i'd already gotten ordained at that point and mm-hmm. it was really the only door that opened for me at that point
1: so how was it for you
2: it was somewhat similar to my hospital chaplaincy in the sense that again i wasn't Pursuing it, I wasn't seeking it. It felt like sort of the the only door that had opened to me, and what I was doing, I was uh, living uh, east of uh, Pasadena, east of L.A. on the eastern side of L.A. County, and I was driving from home to home um, in that area, and also facility, nurse skilled nursing facilities as well, um, to be with people you know who were dying, and I actually very quickly found it to be very meaningful work. I I actually, um, I don't know if I enjoyed it, if that was the right term, (laughs) but I I relished many of those opportunities to be with people. I found it to be very sacred work in a lot of ways. Um, I also found it to be utterly exhausting work in a lot of other ways and compassion fatigue hit me very hard very regularly i don't know if i have a natural temperament for that sort of role i don't know if anybody does or but i felt like i struggled with compassion fatigue more than my colleagues did um and uh but at the same time you know to sit with people as they and hold their hands as they take their last breath or to be with the family members who are caring for their loved ones and watching them die. Those are, are memories that, that that I hold, you know, to this day.
1: And you spoke about compassion fatigue. Many healthcare professionals go through that. Even someone who is listening to our show right now might be going through compassion fatigue. Uh, what steps did you find helpful during those days when you were going through it and you could feel it?
2: I was in therapy regularly at the time, you know, for probably six or eight years. I was in regular weekly therapy and and talking it through with someone that understood was exceptionally helpful. Um, I also found that being out in nature was really important to me. The way I experienced compassion fatigue was was like a short lived depression, you know, a more yeah. sort of situational depression. It wasn't a clinical depression that that lasted for a long time. It usually only lasted for a few days for me. And that's also as I talk about in the book when I discovered a place called the San Andreas Valley just north of santa barbara which is one of the great wine countries of california and i would escape up there as often as i could just to open to live in this kind of be in this open landscape and breathe this fresh air and and drink the wine and and meet these people who now i (laughs) i I live near who um who just didn't seem ruffled by sort of the death visits of the world and this seemed like a place so full of life so i found that being in places full of life and abundance and fruitfulness was yeah. uh, was really helpful for me to remind myself that not everything is death and grief and loss.
1: Yeah, you know, it's, I really what also appreciate about your writing is your use of imagery and your appreciation for space. And in this part of the compassion fatigue, you said you felt like you were walking in ten feet of water, and yeah. that you know that, yeah. that that is really a powerful image. And you said I felt trapped in my best intentions to do good, man. That that's deep stuff. <laughs> it is, it is. And and
2: that that image came to me. I think when I was going through a bout of compassion fatigue, it just felt like sometimes I I just when I worked in a hospice, I felt like. Life all around me, aside from my hospice work, but all, all my friends and, and family and, and life all around me was moving so much faster and everyone was going about their business. And yet somehow I was I was stuck in this in this water and I was trying to move and everything was slow and everything was a little bit blurry and everybody else was going about their lives, but it felt like mine had 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 you know stopped or or slowed down. And I think mm-hmm. that's similar to what a lot of people feel as they're going through significant moments of grief that everyone else is living their lives but for you life has stopped in that time
1: hmm. and then you said it felt like your patients were not the only ones who were dying implying that you it- were dying too in a way
2: Right, right, yeah. In in a way, for sure, it it just felt like things that I had loved, things that I had celebrated, the happiness that I had felt, um, the the even the, you know, they talk about when someone is is depressed that they start losing interest in things they've always loved, and that's mm-hmm. actually similar to what we say about people as they're as they're dying as well. They sort of start detaching from things they love, and I felt like similar things were happening for me as well. I definitely gained weight. I I ate and drank as a coping mechanism. And I was already in a marriage that was failing and my work in hospice, but I was also working. I uh, had a, Several years where I worked midnight to eight. I was I was on call, um, you know, for lack of a better term, graveyard shift, and um, and that very much affected sort of my life, um, you know, during the day, but my relationships as well, including my marriage. And uh, it felt like my my life was was very much kind of collapsing in around me.
1: Well, that will take a little break, and we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care
2: at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life.
1: Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Soler and we continue our conversation with Adam. Um, So tell us, um, I mean, the, the subtitle, uh, a memoir of how wine brought me back from the dead. Um, how did that journey to life begin?
2: it It began uh, in the trip to the south of France that i that I narrate in the first uh, several chapters of the book. and what i what I noticed there, what, I mean, there were so many different connections, you know, uh, there's no way I'm ever going to possibly touch on all of them in our conversation today. Yeah, but there were so many connections that I made, but i uh, I found what felt I had been working in what felt like very sacred territory, like at deathbeds and grieving bedsides before that. But I felt like I I touched a new another form of sacred uh, in the South of france that i was seeing all of these different connections between the history of the church and the history of viticulture i had visited the champagne region for a day and i learned about dom perignon and all the benedictine monks who who labored in the fields and in these cellars and saw their work in wine as as part of their devotion and then in the south of france i was staying in a little town called avignon which the interesting part about avignon and as a protestant i didn't really (laughs) remember this until i got there but I uh, I learned, I relearned that there was actually a 70-year period where the papal throne, the papacy, was based in Avignon in the south of France, and it relocated oh. from Rome, which was fascinating to me, and there's this amazing <laughs> pap- papal palace right there called Palace of the Popes that, in Avignon, and then there's this famous wine region called Châteauneuf-du-Pape about 5 miles north of Avignon which means new chateau of the pope new house yeah. of the pope and the the pope had done the it was really the second pope in the in the the french reign that had done a lot to develop the viticulture and winemaking um, in that area and so it just felt like i was i was touching this this sacred place that I, that i didn't even really know about so it was coming at me as a surprise and but that was where i first heard the phrase blood from a stone. That was where there's all there's the way that they plant vines there they look like little trees coming out of these huge piles of rocks called galets galettes these big round stones and it looks like these trees are growing out of rocks and i asked our tour guide how could anything grow in this you know in this kind of environment and he said that's why the local expression here is making wine is like squeezing blood from a stone mm-hmm. and it just hit me like a like a train <laughs> <laughs>
1: Powerful imagery. You said uh, in your book, you wrote during your time in France, you said, my soul was coming alive through my senses, surrounded by these people who had such a sense of place. I felt my own absence of place. Wow. Talk to us about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah,
2: and that, I'm glad you you, you mentioned that. That was another big part of it is uh, experiencing on that trip these these generations of farmers who had you know their families had lived in the same place for hundreds of years and and uh, i think i said that they must have like you know the land in their dna at this point from all the dirt that's gotten under their fingertips and all the, the wine and all the you know vegetables and fruits they've eaten from from that land and uh and i was experiencing you know at the time I was uh, sort of in between stints and hospice, kind of struggling to know where I belonged, uh, where I was headed, and um, and what I experienced for them was this, this sense of rootedness, this sense of connection with each other, and with the land and with this place, and and I felt so removed from that, but that was a very captivating part of that trip for me, and something I wanted to pursue further after that.
1: Mm. And, uh, you know, in your memoir, uh, the sense of play, we spoke a little bit about earlier how uh, place has a way of shaping us. And uh, how, how, how have you found place has grounded you today?
2: Well, now I, I do feel very connected to place and really maybe for the first time in my life or since the first time since I was growing up in, in Seattle, but for me, place is is not just about the physical landscape that might be called space, hmm. but place is about sort of the intersection where people meet space uh, with sort of how we create and collaborate together with Mother Nature to create place. And um, as someone who lives in, you know, and works in wine country now, um, I see that kind of co-creativity that happens but all the time between, you know, people who work in the fields, people who work in the cellars um, with these particular landscapes and, and, and spaces. And so I, I think uh, one of the big effects that Place has had on me is it's really helped me slow down. It's really helped me to breathe more deeply um, and uh, to not feel like... You know, I I need to go from one place to another to feel like I don't I don't need to to go somewhere or accomplish something else in order to sort of be at peace with myself and and with the people around me.
1: Yeah. You know, I know we are skipping from your hospice chaplaincy work and where you are right now in your life. Uh, but there's a place in the memoir when when you left your chaplaincy work and you said, I knew my chaplain days were finished but I was dealing with an aftermath that was messier and more painful than I expected. What was that aftermath like for you?
2: It it was a lot harder to leave. At first, when I lost my my chaplaincy job for good, I, I felt very relieved. I felt happy. I felt like a burden had been lifted off of my shoulders. But what was surprising to me was how how much harder it was to let go of that role and let more so to let go of the identity that had shaped me so much as a, as a minister, as a chaplain, um, you know, I devoted what, 10, 15 years of my life to going through the ordination process to going through four years of theological training, not to mention all the different hoops I had to jump through in order to get ordained. And then I had worked in ministry for 10 years beyond that. And it's amazing how much that can define your identity when people know you as, you know, Reverend McHugh and you start to kind of, even though you know you're more than that, but you start to see your identity is is you know intertwined with that role. And it was very surprising to me how all of a sudden I, I'm up in one country doing what I thought I wanted to do and yet I felt very insignificant. All of a sudden, I felt very invisible because I was walking into a room. I used to walk into a room and people would say, Shh, the minister is here, right? The mm. chaplain is here. And all of a sudden, I was walking to a room and no one cared and no <laughs> one knew who I was, uh, which was good for me. But at the same time, it was, uh, it was much more painful to let go of the identity of Reverend McHugh um, than I thought it was going to be. I would say it took maybe three years for me to really let go of kind of who I had been and to embrace what was new. And, you know, I call that phase the the wilderness. And I, mm-hmm. I felt like I was in the wilderness. I was sort of neither here nor there for a much longer period of time. I talk about that in the, in the book quite a bit. I felt like I wandered in the wilderness there. I'd left, I'd left, you know, what was familiar and I, I knew there was something else out there, but I felt like I couldn't see it. I couldn't embrace it. And so I just sort of wandered for a while. And, and I, yeah, I, I don't know if I have a, a, a recipe for how <laughs> to let go of that. It just took longer than I thought.
1: But I think part of the longer reason is because you were grieving, and I feel like you honored, you honored your grief and allowed yourself to sit in your grief and find a way to figure this out.
2: Yeah, and, and you know, another image. And I was glad that I knew so much about grief after working in hospital hospice for so long with people who were dying and people who were losing loved ones and i i knew that there was no shortcut out of that that that's something that you have to walk through in order to get to the, to sort of the new place. And so I was, it's true. I, uh, I, I liked how you said that, that I, I didn't try to short circuit that. Uh-huh. I just knew I recognized, and I used that language to help myself interpret what was happening to me, that it felt like I was dying, or at least that a part of me was dying that I had devoted a lot of time and energy to, and that I couldn't sort of like get that part of me not to die but at the same time um i couldn't just jump to the next thing so i had to sit with that and be present almost like i was present you know at a, at a grieving
1: bedside well that would take a little break and we'll be right back
0: if someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support please call the national alliance for mental illness helpline it is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info
1: I'm Sole Bam and we continue our conversation with Adam. Adam's book is Blood from a Stone, a memo of how wine brought me back from the dead. And what I appreciate, I know in any memoir, there are many things that people read a memoir for, and there are many themes a memoir uh, brings to the table. And I appreciate your uh, stories about life transitions. And we were talking earlier before the break of you, when you were sitting through this moment of grief, and now you have this passion for wine. What steps did you get? Uh, did you take to become where you are right now?
2: There was a lot of uh, a lot of self-study, a lot of reading, a lot of education. While I was working in hospice in my last stint in hospice, I was taking uh, what's called oineology classes, study of wine uh, at UCLA. So I was doing even more driving besides uh, driving to my, you know, hospice work. And um, but a lot of it was uh, just getting up to the San Enes Valley is like my little sanctuary, my retreat place as much as possible and talking to people, meeting people and, um, you know, trying to see if there was if, if, if this was more than just a fantasy, if my idea of, of leaving hospice and and moving into wine country and writing books and working at wineries, if that was anything more than a fantasy. Uh, so the, again, the connections that that I relish now were already being made, um, at that point. And uh, I just, I noticed how I felt when I was in wine country versus how I felt when I was down in LA and I felt so much lighter, so much happier, Um, you know, part of that was just being on vacation, but, um, I think, I think also there, it just felt like there was something like there was sort of new life or abundance that was flourishing, that was sort of inviting me in. And I I realized that I just wasn't going to flourish in life the way I wanted to in my current situation, working as a hospice chaplain in a,
1: in a marriage that was failing. And
2: there was a lot of upheaval that I went through in order to get uh, where I am now.
1: So your work in wine, in a sense, was an invitation for you to live your life fully.
2: Totally, and I and I, I say that all the time. That for me, it, it, it was it's about wine, but uh, you know, my life is is a very much kind of centered around the wine, world of wine nowadays. But it's so much larger than that, and uh, it could have been any a number of other things, really. And for other people, it'll be other things. But for me, wine felt like an invitation to life and abundance and that's what i was pursuing
1: so how do religious people that you've known from your past respond when they hear you've uh, transition from ministry to working in wine. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I assume there might be different responses. <laughs> it, yeah, it completely depends on
2: their theological background. So you know, uh, like if there's any assemblies of God people, or you know, really conservative evangelicals, and they they look very suspicious at you, like somehow I've I've left God and chasing the devil. Which <laughs> honestly, to me, at this point, is is kind of funny because I'm like, you know just read the new Testament. But uh, the, uh, if I talk to Catholics, they all almost to a person, they're all like that completely follows. That totally makes sense. You know, (laughs) like, Wine is the 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 centerpiece of religious altars, and you know, and we wouldn't we wouldn't even have wine the way that it is without Jesus saying, you know, this is my blood, you know, poured out for you. Like that's what led to the church being so centrally involved in wine for the next two thousand years. So, so you know, more liturgical Christians like not only see it, you know, they not only see it as a good thing, but they see it as something that actually is like a very logical next step so it's pretty funny (laughs) what kind of reactions i get
1: about it (laughs) you know something curious caught my attention in your book you said wine isn't made wine happens that's deep deep language there well and that's just true
2: historically it's uh wine was probably discovered about eight thousand years ago in the caucasus mountains in southern georgia uh you know georgia by the black sea and um And that's that's how everything in the world of wine or the world of alcohol in any form it was it was discovered someone probably like, you know, gathered some grapes growing wildly in Eastern Europe and, and the juice was released by gravity of all the clusters on top and then the wild yeast that were present just started fermenting it and that's. That's how wine was was discovered and then it would take, you know, hundreds or thousands of years to sort of refine the process. But I you know, then Martin Luther said that, that that beer was made by man and wine was made by God because it's just something that's actually a naturally occurring agricultural product.
1: When you look back over your life, how has your work as a hospice chaplain prepared you for what you do now? <clears throat>
2: I mean, I can, I can, I can tell the I can say the the funny line that I use, and then I'll tell you more seriously, but the line (laughs) that I use nowadays, when I tell people, Hey, I used to work as a hospice chaplain and grief counselor, and now I work in in the wine industry and they always say, wow, what an incredible change. And I say, not really. I used to listen to medicated people for a living in my old work. And I still listen to medicated people in my new work. They're just a lot happier now. That's, that's, (laughs) that's, that's, that's the line. I the, the sort of disarming line that I use, um, <laughs> but you know, it's interesting. If hospice taught me nothing else, um, and it, hospice taught me a lot, but uh, listening, I, my previous book is called *The Listening Life*, which came out seven or eight years ago, mm. and. That's really what I was as a hospice chaplain was a professional listener. And I learned how to listen to people in pain without trying to change them or tell them how to feel. I learned how to just be you know, that ministry of presence. And it's amazing how that translates to every aspect of life, every relationship we have. I've let go of my role as a hospice chaplain, but I have not let go of my role as a listener. And it's amazing how in every genuine human encounter, how important that that listening and that presence is. And so I do that all the time in the world of wine as I ask questions and and listen to, you know, I lead wine tours and I get to know people over the course of a day or I work at a winery a couple of days a week where we do kind of longer private appointments with people. And so much of the conversation turns away from wine pretty quickly and to just quite conversations about life and that role of listener for me just continues to be maybe one of the central defining aspects of my life.
1: Mm. So how about your relationship with celebration? Because when you were doing hospice chaplaincy work, you said celebration seemed like denial and denial is grief. In hospice, mourning a loss before it happens is called anticipatory grief celebration for me had become merely an act of anticipatory grief.
2: And so I, I feel like my, my celebration that was once much headier, like when I first got into the wine industry, feels a little bit more sober than it used to, a little bit more realistic, um, a little bit more balanced, I think. And um, it's just amazing how I continue to use those lessons from my work in hospice to uh, sort of navigate life in this society as a whole.
1: Your life as you've lived, it connects with all of us. So what are your final thoughts?
2: It's interesting how the farther I get from my work as a hospice chaplain, because there was a time after I left that I very much sort of resented what what it had done to me. And, um, you know, really, I, didn't, I don't know if I ever regretted it, but I was aware of how much it had changed me for the bad. But I also, but the farther I get from it, the more grateful I am for that work it's been several years now since i did that work and i even occasionally have moments where i miss just a little bit those genuine human encounters where everyone's unmasked in those like truly vulnerable fragile moments of life and where you can just be human beings together without all of the show without all of the pretense and um I, I feel nothing at this point but gratitude for my work as a hospice chaplain, but I'm I'm glad I don't do it anymore at the same time. <laughs> but I'm grateful yeah. for the transformation that it brought into my
1: life. So where can our listeners get a hold of your book?
2: It's out there in the world. It's called Blood from a Stone, a memoir of how wine brought me back from the dead. It's it's on all the major online retailers. I'm a big fan of shopping local. I think you'd probably have to order it uh, through your local bookstore, or bookshop.org, which supports local bookstores. But I always say, you know, if you can get it locally, please do so and help, help uh, local bookstores stay in business.
1: Adam, Thank you, man. It's been an honor uh, talking to you and for your vulnerability with our listeners and making yourself available. I really appreciate that.
2: It's my pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Uh, thanks, blessings. That was Adam McHugh. His book is Blood from a Stone, a Memo of How Wine Brought Me Back from the Dead. Thank you very much for listening.
0: This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to this show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.